welcome to the LAR Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Today, we're speaking with novelist and KBOO radio personality, David Naiman, about his relationship with the late and great Ursula K. Le Guin, as well as the book that they co-wrote together on writing, called, appropriately, Conversations on Writing with Ursula K. Le Guin. This was a very useful book, I thought. Yeah, I thought actually, first of all, it was fascinating to see, I I should say I'm not a huge Le Guin fan, so I'm not like deeply read. I've read some of Tales of Earthsea and The Left Hand of Darkness, both enjoyed. I'm also not a huge science fiction person, Mm -hmm. but it was cool to kind of get a sense of what her process is like and how she conceptualizes writing and language. That was really fun. And I was also impressed with David's process um, mm. for his show, for his radio show. Oh, yeah. Maybe also a little humbled by like, <laughs> Very the humbled, sheer yeah. amount of like, research that he, goes into His show is called Between the Covers, and it's an excellent show with writers speaking about their work. And he's just a great interviewer. And um, he obviously does a lot of research, as, as he alludes to in our conversation. So I am very humbled by his his work. All right. Well, with that note of humbleness, let's cut right to the interview. Sounds good. We're speaking with David Naiman, a Portland-based writer and the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. He is also the author of Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing, a series of three interviews he conducted with the late multiple award-winning science fiction, fantasy, poetry, and nonfiction writer. Le Guin died this January at the age of 88, the author of an impressive 21 novels, 11 volumes of short stories, four essay collections, 12 children's books, and six volumes of poetry. Right? We should all stand and cheer. All right. But without further ado, welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be on this podcast. Okay, so first, can you just kind of talk to us about your relationship with Ursula? What made her distinct to you as a literary voice? How did you come to know her? And what was it like doing interviews with her? Well, she had a sort of a long-standing relationship with the community radio where I am a host. So for over the decades, she had been on the radio station many times. I think partially because she liked to support regional and local organizations, but also because it had a radical mission statement supporting underrepresented voices. But when her new edition of Steering the Craft, her writing book, came out, I was thinking, nobody ever talks to her about her work that isn't directly science fiction and fantasy. And I took that as an opportunity to reach out and see if we could have a conversation about the craft of writing fiction which ended up being about science fiction and fantasy, but also about a whole bunch of other things as well. And that's where everything began, was her coming in, us having a conversation about craft. So I didn't, at that point, anticipate that we were going to eventually collaborate on a book together. So, as you say, people are really familiar with her as a science fiction writer, but I think less so as a poet and as a nonfiction writer and translator and everything we were saying in the introduction. Could you just talk a little bit about her output aside from her science fiction? I mean, how often did she publish poetry books or children's books, her nonfiction? Was that yeah. pretty intermittent? So for people who don't know, the book started with that craft conversation, and then there's the second 
part of the book is a discussion we later had on poetry and then a third conversation we have about nonfiction. She started as a poet. So her from the very beginning, she was writing poetry. And then about 10 years before she passed away, when she stopped writing novels, but she continued to write poetry and continued to be in her poetry group. So poetry is the strongest through line for her career, even though it's probably the thing people know least about her. Yeah, I had Uh, no idea that she was a poet. Yeah, and she has her final collection coming out from Copper Canyon soon. So she was a poet. She was very serious about poetry. She translated Gabriela Mistral, the Chilean Nobel Prize winner, and was one of the first people to bring her poetry into English. She translated Rilke and did her own sort of idiosyncratic translation of the Tao Te Ching. And she's also even done some image text books where she collaborated with a photographer and wrote poems to his images. So she's done quite a bit of poetry, sort of flies under the radar, but not because she didn't take it seriously. And also, periodically through her career, she was writing essays, essay collections. And some of those essay collections also include her literary criticism. She was an amazing book reviewer. And you can learn a lot about writing just reading her reviews of Salman Rushdie or David Mitchell or whoever. They're very insightful and pedagogical. And then she gave some really landmark speeches, political speeches and otherwise, that get collected in some of these essay collections. Right. So actually, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about is that Le Guin's relationship to genre is a very interesting one. And her relationship also to the literary marketplace, I think, is a fascinating one because she resists throughout her career kind of the hierarchies that tend to crust up around literature, right? And it's true elsewhere, but she kind of doesn't like this distinction between high and low, between quote-unquote like literary fiction and science fiction, right? She resists a lot of those kind of ghettoization of certain kinds of genres and obviously herself expressed herself in a number of different genres. So can you explain a little bit like what inspired her position in the field and kind of how she helped clear ground for writers that followed in her wake with regard to both writing in science fiction, but also thinking much more broadly about genre. I think you're right the way you articulated it, because yes, she was against the hierarchies and against the ghettoization of genre writing, but she wasn't against the distinction. Like she was proudly, when she wrote science fiction and fantasy, she was proudly of that world. So she thought there was usefulness in the distinction, but she also felt like there was sort of a snobbery around the quality difference between literary and science fiction and fantasy, where she would argue that there's just as much bad, quote-unquote, literary fiction. Like in popular realist fiction, there's just as much bad writing and writing that's mechanical and following tropes. But the best of both genres are literature. And she'd even argue, I think, that the origins of literary fiction are fantastical, whether it's Don Quixote or Beowulf. Oh, right, because she um, says it's all myths, right? At the very foundation yeah. of literature. Is I love that point. I thought yeah. that so smart. Yeah, so I think that she is one of the people who is at the forefront of the battle, which I think she thinks is largely won around the borders between genre and literary fiction. Like, you'll see now Kelly Link or Helen Oyeyemi Karen Russell. Karen Russell, yeah. Yeah, and you see them in both types of magazines and in both worlds, and there seems to be less of a fight to pigeonhole the writer. 
And I think she's partially responsible for that. David, I was wondering, could you describe her? I mean, we've talked a lot already about her accomplishments, her thoughts. Could you describe her a little bit as a person, as a woman that you spoke with, that you met? Anything that really struck you and that you remember her by? Well, she doesn't suffer fools. So there's this sense of like, when you hear her talking about craft, one of the really things that's interesting about it is she has this long view. She's seen a whole bunch of different fads that were supposed to be the only way you were supposed to write Mm -hmm. and see them pass. And so she, because of this long view, she was also somebody who, when she came to the interview, she wasn't trying to say things just to impress or in order to make me comfortable. She wasn't trying to make me uncomfortable, but she had also the long view around what an interview was like for her. And she writes about that in the book too, which I think is really great and also very funny when she talks, it's called Fear and Loathing in the interview. And she goes through all the ways that interviews have gone wrong in her career. And similarly with poetry, like she writes in forms that are no longer considered in vogue or popular. And I just think that's the way she is in the world. She's matter of fact, direct. She's funny. She was remarkable. I think she was intimidating in the way that she was forthright. And she had strong opinions. But she's also was humble and a listener. It was a unique combination of elements, I think. I'm sorry to do this to you, but as an editor, I notice that you keep changing tense in terms of how you talk about her. So in the present tense, in the past tense... Is there a way in which you think of her as currently still present and with us and simultaneously in the past? Is there a way in which you well, I mean, maybe I think, think about her literature part, that way? I think there's, I mean, part of it's the confusion of talking about her work versus talking about her. Right. But the other part is truly the fact that we were doing the final edits to the book when she passed away, and we didn't have any warning around that. So we were passing back and forth the manuscript, mostly doing copy edits at the end when we heard the news. And the public memorial for her in Portland is on Wednesday. So there's been this sort of six months where we've been in a whirlwind of getting the book out. And I don't know that I've really come to have a chance to really mourn. I think that's going to start on Wednesday, weirdly. And so there's probably that confusion in my own mind that all of this has been sort of swept me and Tin House up into an accelerated publication schedule and then a deep meditation about what Ursula meant without really the pause that has allowed anybody to grieve. Do you have a sense of what that memorial will be like? I'm really excited about it because it's China Mieville and Kelly Link and oh, wow. Margaret Atwood and a whole bunch of other, Walida Imarisha, a whole bunch of other people who are significant in Ursula's life. And it's free, but it's sold out in like an hour, and it's at the one of the nicest venues in town. There really hasn't been anything in Portland like this yet, and she's so deeply rooted to the region, so self-identified with the state and with the West Coast that I think it's going to be really remarkable. Something that's interesting in the interviews is that despite her long career and all her output and accomplishments, I didn't get a sense in reading your conversations that she was getting ready to kind of wind down or thinking about her legacy and looking back on her work. It didn't seem from reading your conversations that she was done. Did you talk or get a sense at all of where she felt her legacy was or 
if she sensed her mortality. I mean, she references her age, but was yeah, that a part I, of the conversation? I don't, I don't know that she would want to talk about her legacy. She was even reluctant. She had started just in the last years of her life sharing her own story about how hard it was to get published at the beginning. And she was doing some interactions with writers online about that. But prior to that, had felt like maybe it would be arrogant to share that and then feeling like finally that it was a useful thing to do. But I do think she was contemplating her mortality. If you just look at the titles of some of the last books, so Words Are My Matter, Late in the Day, and then a book that came out recently, No Time to Spare. She was thinking about it, and we didn't address it specifically in the conversation except in the ways in which her long writing life, about 50 years of publishing, how that affected her view around craft and around politics and the art of writing. You know, that's interesting because I wonder if one of her resistances to thinking about herself as a legacy is a deep and abiding resistance to thinking about the author and the artist as a commodity. Right. So she has this kind of very interesting, she writes about this in essays, talks about it in interviews, and also it was the subject of, I can't remember that very famous speech that she gave. National Book Award. Right. Where she's talking basically against the commodification of literature and the kind of author as a branded object. I think at some point she may not mention Instagram, but she talks about authors on social media now and how they basically have to perform a kind of identity. So I'm wondering on the one hand, if that factors into her anxiety about thinking about a legacy and also how she encountered herself as like a very, very famous author. I think that's a really interesting insight. I suspect that's probably true around the commodification Mm -hmm. because even some of the things that she looks at in what is popular today, she's suspicious of, say, everyone writing in the present tense or what length your novel is supposed to be and all the ways in which sort of the corporatization and commodification of art is influencing the aesthetics of the art. But I also think part of it might be because she's so other-focused, the ways in which she'll talk a lot about her fears around the erasure of women from the canon. Right. She'll talk about Grace Paley, the way mysteriously women who are very popular while they're alive will sort of disappear from the conversation when it comes to legacy or canonization. So certainly I would imagine... She's wondering that for herself, though she wouldn't speak of it in relationship to herself. But she definitely had this question around women and literature and legacy. You are listening to the LAR Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with David Naiman about his new book, Conversations on Writing, with Ursula K. Le Guin. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're in the studio today with author Dan Lopez, whose book The Show House was published by Unnamed Press. Dan's here to give us this week's book recommendation. So Dan, what are you recommending? Hi, Eric. Uh, Today, I am recommending Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. This is a relatively new book, and it's getting a lot of buzz as much for its author as it is for its premise. Halliday, much like her creation, when she first started in publishing, struck up a relationship with a much older established author. In her Mm. case, it was Philip Roth. In the case of this book, it's a fictional author called Ezra Blazer. 
that part's interesting in terms of, you know, the novelty and gossip of the publishing world. But what makes the book really interesting is that it's comprised of these three very sort of loosely tied sections. And the first is the relationship between the character of Alice and the character of Ezra Blazer. They deal with a lot of things that go into any sort of relationship, but then get complicated by the age difference in them. The second part is the story of an Iraqi-American man named Amar who's going back to Kurdistan to visit his brother. On the way there, he's held at Heathrow, and his journey is potentially interrupted, um, potentially, you know, he's arrested, like all these kind of things could be happening. And so he uses that moment to reflect on what his relationship with his brother is, what his relationship with these ongoing wars and that kind of stuff is. It's all beautifully written. The pacing is amazing. Um, You just really get sucked into each of these characters. And then it finishes with this sort of coda that ties both of them together in a really interesting way. And it is asymmetrical. It's not like... Well, he's going to say it's a story about geopolitics, but also cross-generational relationships. Yeah. So you can see where kind of like the title comes into that. And yeah. where like, it's it's a weird sort of construct. I read it in Galley months and months ago, and it stuck with me. I think I read it like in November last year. And so it's been with me this whole time. And I just, I'm so happy it's out there now. And the people are discovering that's getting a lot of great press. I, I love it. It's It just sucks me. And I want to go back and I want to read it again and look for those like little Easter eggs that tie the whole thing together. That's part of the fun of it, like trying to figure out what does part A have to do with part C and et cetera. Sounds great. Okay, can you give us the title and the author one more time? Absolutely. It's Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Thanks so much. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with David Naiman about his recent book, Conversations on Writing, a series of interviews with Ursula K. Le Guin. I like the distinction you made about her nonfiction as being the in-the-world uh, version of her, Ursula, as you write in the introduction to that section of your book. And, and you mentioned that she liked that form of writing the least. So that maybe also ties into what we're talking about, that things that were very identity-focused for her were not her most favorite things to write. And yet she did write a lot of nonfiction. So do you have insight into that, why she why she resisted that form so much? Well, I think part of it was the, the declarative nature of it. Like you're, you're making, or at least she saw it as you making statements, um, in a way in which when you're writing fiction, it's more complex. And it, certainly with her poetry, where it's more contemplative and other focused, right. that um, she's more open to sort of a maybe a linear sort of criticism when she's making declarative notions. So I don't find that even though you see more of her opinions directly in her essays or her speeches, I still feel like a lot of the time you you get that sense of uh, mystery and negative capability in her nonfiction too. So it's it's complicated. I mean, the way she's she matter-of-factly includes the other in in her fiction. So having protagonists who matter-of-factly are are not white or gender ambiguous or anti-capitalist. When she's doing her nonfiction, when she's doing her speech for the National Book Foundation and she's calling out people who are actually in the audience, she's great at that. But it also, I think it brings up more anxiety for her to get it right in that regard. I am interested if that's what kind of, I always think of Ursula K. Le Guin and Sam Delaney, obviously very, very different writers, 
but kind of same with Octavia Butler. Those are kind of the three that I think of, which is also betrays my lack of deep reading in science fiction. Um, but I'm interested in kind of what drew her to that genre. Like, what possibilities did she find there? Because it strikes me that one thing that connects her to uh, Butler and to Delaney is this interrogation of what the other looks like and that how we relate to others, how is specifically how we relate to difference, right? So I'm, I'm just wondering a little bit, what did she see as the capacity of science fiction to encounter the sorts of questions that she wanted to ask? Well, that's a good question. I think at the beginning, I don't think she knew that she was going to be a science fiction fantasy writer. She was submitting to both types of journals and found that that world was more receptive to what she was doing. Mm. But I think she would argue if we stepped back from the science fiction fantasy versus literary fiction distinction, I, she definitely argues for the importance of the imaginative, mm. which I think she would argue is important in realistic fiction too, but that there's sort of a denial sometimes in mimetic fiction that it's going on. So like she would argue, I think that if you don't include the imaginative, you're not really being realistic because the imaginative is so vital to human experience. And so in a way she would, she would put forth that even the things like unicorns or dragons or um, magic spells are part of uh, human experience. And so strangely, she's sort of flipping the narrative around what would be like a true way to write. And that even Uh, relates to point of view. Sorry, because you guys have a whole discussion about point of view, authorial point of view. So fiction can do that. You you know, always first person is very limited. And authorial point of view is in, in its way also a form of imaginative writing to be able to get into other people's heads that's not realistic oh i like that i I mean and she calls for for other people listening who don't know what authorial point of view that's what she calls omniscient point of view and i think that's true like i think she would probably say that that is also even if you're writing middle march that omniscient point of view is is a utilization of the imaginative i was wondering david because you have uh, your own show, you've interviewed many authors before um, and many writers. Something that's really interested me, and I wondered how you approached this with Ursula in particular, is how one um, how you approached this conversation. Because there, I think the funny thing sometimes about talking to writers in particular is that you have spent a lot of time with them and they've spent no time with you. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, they have so no true. idea who you are, but... <laughs> You have this weird, deep connection with them. You spent weeks together, maybe. And so I was wondering if you think about that and then meeting somebody who exists also as such a large reputation, as such a force, um, how to approach that kind of conversation? That's a good question. I I think part of what helped is that uh, the scope was so narrow. I mean, Mm -hmm. we end up when we're talking about syntax or grammar or fads in writing we end up talking about everything uh, from class to gender to race to science fiction versus literary fiction. But it starts with such a narrow focus. I think that helped me, you know, meeting a living legend, really sort of getting down to this one topic and then finding everything from within that one topic was part of it. She's also very 
I mean, she looms large in the imagination, but she's also very unassuming in, in her presence. It's not like you feel like she's enamored with her own reputation in a way that she moves through the world as a celebrity, which is also helpful. Right. Yeah. How much I love your show, and I think you're a really amazing interviewer. Um, how much preparation do you do before you talk to someone? How how much do you read of their work? Oh, or maybe you don't right. want to reveal. I, don't know, but, <laughs> I, I can. I'm just a little embarrassed by it. But I I probably spend I don't know twenty five or thirty hours per interview. Wow. It, and if it I'm shows. if I'm able to, I'm trying to read not just the book we're talking about, but also other books, plus other interviews and oblique material that's related to it, if possible. So in the best case scenario, I'm, I'm reading deeply and widely around an interview. Uh, that's not always possible, but as much as I can, I, I, I try to do quite a bit. I, I like it. I feel like it, while I do a ton of preparation, I try to leave room for, for it to sort of happen like leave room for some improvisation as the interview is happening. But I also like to have something to lean back on that might not be the obvious thing that they're expecting. I also, I was um, as you're talking about preparation, is was there ever a person that you spoke to where you felt like, you know, no amount of preparation would have prepared me for this? Who is, yeah. who is this person? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, there have been a couple interviews over the years that... Um, sort of derailed. Uh-huh. Uh, Can you tell us about one? Didn't go as, <laughs> you don't have I'm to sorry. name names. I would say probably the most difficult interview, which isn't that surprising because there's some interviews that I've done where you sort of know that the interviews might present some challenges was, was an interview I did with Mary Gateskill. Uh-huh. And p- part of it was just yeah, simply... Kate. Kate just waved her fists yeah. in the air. Because she's my favorite, <laughs> she's one of my favorite writers. Yeah, so. we're all very gay I'll say this. fans. I'll say this way. I love her writing. I think she's she's a, I think she's a fantastic writer. And I have a lot of respect for her. But she seemed um I know she it's it's not just with me, but I, I know she she can be a difficult person to interview for for a number of people and I feel like she was very open and generous when it would come to talking about things like horseback riding and its preparation for the book. So some of the things that I was maybe less interested in, but when I would want to talk about craft or I would want to go into um, detail around uh, the conversation and some of the essays that she'd written sort of around the book, she didn't really want to go there. But what was unnerving, I guess, was the fact that she just wouldn't acknowledge that I had asked the question. You know, I think be the silence. And as the conversation went on, the whatever rapport there was uh, sort of dwindled away. And through the remarkable um, act of editing and bringing the answers closer to the questions and removing some of the questions, I don't think you can tell in our interview. That's, if I were to, that's the were to, beauty that's of lucky. editing. Yeah. <laughs> the original interview, it was a little tough. We got lucky with Mary Gateskill because um, when she came to our interview, which was also at a party that we had thrown for her, she was feeling a little sick and accepted an edible that a, one of our interviews gave to her. And if you uh-huh. go back to, to our interview with her, she says, um, I just ate an edible and I'm so fucked up right now that I can't 
stand. And so she was so easy and lovely. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. open. <laughs> well, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have had that tip. That was, yeah, <laughs> that was an accidental um, thing that we found out from that event. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, David, to turn back to um, Ursula K. Le Guin for a second, um, yeah. I'm, I'm actually really interested in hearing what, because obviously, you know, in terms of preparation, you've read lots of her work and, you know, you've engaged with her several times. What work of hers do you enjoy the most? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think when you mentioned when you mentioned Samuel Delaney, like I think of Dahlgren by Delaney and and Left Hand of Darkness. They don't feel. I mean, they're both forty to fifty years old, yeah. and they still feel very avant-garde. Um, yeah, for sure. It, they don't feel dated. They still feel on the edge of where we're moving in, in, in culture, uh, and politics, but I don't know if I, I would say that I also truly enjoy reading her poetry and her essays, the small beer press collection words are my matter, I think is fantastic. And I do love a lot of her poetry. Uh, and I would really encourage people to check it out. And there's going to be a, I think the new one's called so far so good, and it should be coming out, uh, within the next six months, I think. Uh, David, you're a writer as well as an excellent interviewer. And um, in your conversations with Lucan, you guys talked a lot about craft. I'm wondering if there's um, something you came away with from your conversations about the writing craft and writing that, that has helped you personally in your own practice. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that she emphasizes imitation as a way to begin there's this weirdness that if you're going to learn how to paint or you're going to learn how to play the piano, you very naturally, and it's totally accepted, you, you imitate people who you're inspired by as part of it. So uh, you would play Chopin and you would, you would paint like some of the people you admire. But with writing, you're supposed to sort of sit down at the typewriter and be struck by this sort of individual lightning bolt of genius that isn't connected to the people who came before you and is this incredible a revelation of your soul that isn't really connected to community or to ancestry, literary ancestry. And I think that she really brings it down to starting with the people that, well, not only the people that you're moved by, but just trying on different voices and then learning from inhabiting them. And and one of the books that she really loved, Sword in the Stone, where Merlin is teaching King Arthur, the future King Arthur, what he needs to know to become king. Basically, what he's doing to teach him how to be king is turning him into different animals and birds and into a rock. And this sort of idea of inhabiting the other is a useful thing. And also is an ethical thing when it comes to her poetry, I think, when she's the imaginative and contemplative aspect of of bringing animals and plants and nature back into the story with humans, I think is um, has some political implications too. Right. Well, unfortunately, we have to end it there, but that's a great, actually, um, place to end on. Thank you so much, David. We've really enjoyed this conversation. We thoroughly enjoyed reading um, your conversations with Ursula K. Le Guin. They're really great. Okay. Oh, that's so great to hear. And I'm so happy to have been on on one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, Thank you so nice. much. Thank the love you, is Kate, mutual. Yeah. Take care. You too. 
We've been speaking with David Naiman, author of Conversations on Writing, a series of interviews with Ursula K. Le Guin. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.